0: Please listen carefully.
1: Hi, hello everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Hooked on Science. I'm so delighted that Dr. Lily Calderwood could join us today. Lily and I met at the University of Vermont while she was working on her PhD in plant and soil science. I worked for her as an, an undergrad research assistant on her hot pest management projects. She is an amazing researcher and scientist and was one of my inspirations for pursuing a graduate degree in the first place. Lily is currently the Extension Wild Blueberry Specialist and an Assistant Professor of Horticulture at the University of Maine. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Julia.
1: Before we get into your research, let's back up a little bit. When did you know that you wanted to be a scientist?
0: Oh, boy. Well, so I went to a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, Wheaton College, and I majored in biology, but I did not really pinpoint what specifically I wanted to do uh, until after college, after I was in a job. So I was working on Cape Cod as a more of a wildlife biology research assistant for Massachusetts Audubon Society. And you know, I was out on a beach doing bird counts and catching turtles out of a kayak, which was really fun, but quite lonely at times. And I, I just felt like science could be more communicative with the population. And I, I really wanted to work with more people in science, but I wasn't quite sure what angle to take yet. So I started working for Earthwatch Institute, which is a nonprofit in Boston. So they bring in volunteers from all over the country to go on scientific projects and help researchers collect data. So it's a citizen science effort. And there was a coffee project in Costa Rica where they were trying to look at the different insect communities and pollination So that was very inspiring, and it made me realize, okay, there are farmers out there who want to do research, and at the same time, back at home, I had a relative who worked for the University of Connecticut Cooperative Extension, so I knew that Extension was out there. Through those different experiences, I figured out I wanted to work for Extension, and so I applied to grad school, and from there on, it was awesome. I got hooked on working with farmers, and it's just such a great way to involve the community with science and really hear what their challenges are and actually be able to go back to the university and come up with an idea that might address their challenge.
1: Very cool. So you're talking about working with farmers and citizen science and working for Extension, but some of our listeners might not know what that side of academia looks like. Can you talk a little bit about what an extension role is and how it's different than a traditional professor at a university?
0: Yeah, definitely. I feel like I explain this a lot to people and very few people know what extension is. The way I usually explain this is that I, instead of teaching in the classroom, I teach farmers out in the field. Anybody who calls and wants a visit, I'm happy to go and talk to them. And I also organize a lot of meetings and conferences for farmers to get together to communicate with each other, because so often they just haven't met somebody who has dealt with the same challenge and they, you know, they can learn so much from each other. Often I feel like I'm just connecting one person to another.
1: Before you can start connecting farmers with each other, how do you connect with them yourself? Did you find that people were coming to you,
0: that you had to go to them? Yeah, good question. It can be really hard for new faculty to build relationships within the community. I was uh, lucky in some respects that the Maine Blueberry Program um, is very well respected by the blueberry growers in Maine. And so they were really excited to meet this new person and ready for fresh ideas and Uh, more energy to come into the program. So overall people were very welcoming and already had a relationship with the university because Extension has been working with them for so long. So Lily, before we get too far into anything
1: else, can you tell me what a wild blueberry is and how it's different than a
0: regular blueberry? Yep, absolutely. So highbush blueberry are what everybody thinks of as a blueberry. They're larger than the wild blueberry. We call them wild blueberries, which is a marketing tool. Scientifically, they are lowbush blueberries. These lowbush blueberries are on the ground and they don't grow any higher than six inches or so. From afar, it looks like a, a hay field. There are not rows. They grow in a patchwork of different plants. One other difference is just that the lowbush wild blueberries are not planted. So, if a farmer wants to create a new field, they cut down the forest and the wild blueberry rhizomes are already in the understory. By cutting down the forest, the blueberries have more sunlight and we can foster them to inhabit the whole field and grow to a point where they can produce a crop.
1: You also mentioned that wild blueberries are specific to Maine. Why is that? Yep.
0: So, our soil is acidic and very sandy. There's there, are a few different growing regions. So in what we call Down East Maine, which is actually the easternmost part of Maine, about 50 miles inland from the coast, this is what we call the Wild Blueberry Barrens, and the soil there is a direct result from glaciers that were there 10,000 years ago. As the glaciers retreated, they created these outwash plains. If you can picture. A riverbed, you know, a nice flat, wide riverbed, that space is now an ideal habitat for the wild blueberries because it's very, very well draining, it's quite gravelly, and it's acidic. So our soils in that region are between 4.0 and 4.5, which is really low for a crop. And the blueberry does partner with fungi to get nutrients that it needs because at such a low pH, the blueberry doesn't have certain nutrients available to it. And then we have a second growing region, which we call midcoast Maine. So a little further south, but still 20 to 50 miles inland from the coast. And these fields are up on hilltops. And the hilltops have, uh, you know, these Well-draining soils, but the soils there are a little heavier. They do have more nutrients in them, and the pH is typically a little higher. But the blueberries do well there, too. Also, our cool springs. So we have a long winter and a cool, wet spring, which provides a good habitat for these berries. In general, the berries like a more wet climate.
1: If wild blueberries are ubiquitous to Maine and they just happen to be on certain parcels of land, is there a lot of competition for land that has these native blueberries on them?
0: Right now, there is not competition for that land because the market is so low. Currently, 90% of the wild blueberry crop is frozen and uh, not made into value-added products, but... We're shifting into an era where we are going to start creating value-added products, getting this special berry out of a commodity market into more value-added health food arenas. So right now, land is being sold for cheap, but the blueberry fields will not disappear because the rhizomes will always be there. So somebody could let a field go because the market isn't good and then come back you know, 10 years later and clear it again, and the plants will still be there.
1: Okay, I've definitely seen the frozen berries. Maybe other people have too in the freezer aisle at the grocery store. Um, I think of the Wyman's of Maine brand, but besides the freezer blueberries, what types of value-added products might we see using wild blueberries in the future?
0: Some value-added products, you know, can be made from frozen blueberries. Freezing berries will never go away because we only have the month of August to harvest. And so the fresh berries are a, it's a short season. Freezing them is the, probably the easiest way to preserve a crop. So then the interest now is in making different products from those frozen berries. So you can make juice, you can make wine, you can make dried berries from frozen berries, it just takes, you know, thawing them, grinding them up and processing them in a different way. But you can do all of that starting with frozen berries.
1: What is the barrier to transitioning from freezing almost all the berries to selling them as value-added products that have a higher market value?
0: We need more young farmers to be interested in wild blueberry because there are markets out there. It just takes the right idea, you know, I did a survey and around 70% of farmers are over the age of 50, and at least 20% of them are over the age of 70. So it's a very, very much an aging population of farmers, which is a trend across the country, but especially for this wild blueberry. And, you know, it's a challenge. We want these older farmers to have everything that they need as they transition off the farm but those growers often don't feel like they can be flexible in their business to adapt to a new market or take on a new practice. So we're in in a real transition period. You mentioned before we started
1: recording that blueberries are the second largest agricultural crop in Maine, only behind potato, but how big of an area are we talking about?
0: Yeah, there are 40,000 acres of wild blueberry in Maine, and there are about 500 farmers who grow those 40,000 acres. And so we have a real range. A small blueberry farm would be 20 acres, and a large blueberry farm would be 15,000 acres.
1: I just want to jump in here for a second. For those of you who might not be familiar with how big an acre is, a football field is about 1.33333 forever three acres. So a 15,000 acre blueberry farm would be about 11,250 football fields.
0: Some of them are very large fields, yeah. And it's interesting, it's a little bit of a different crop in that the management of it is low input. It doesn't need to be planted. So in the spring, it's already there and pruning is a bit different we prune by cutting the whole crop down. That creates a two-year cropping cycle. So we have vegetative year fields and crop year fields. And so each individual field will not produce berries every year. So the acreage is kind of split between vegetative and uh, crop production year. And so an individual farmer, they're more like land managers. They manage many, many fields together for their business rather than having a home base and, you know, a farmhouse on the farm. So a given farmer may have 20 different fields. Each are 5 to 20 acres in size. Okay, so
1: you're a wild blueberry farmer. You have all these tracts of land that you've cleared to grow wild blueberries. In a given year, half of your fields have been cut back and are in their vegetative state, which basically means that just the branches and leaves are growing and that you're not getting any berries off of it, but the other half of your field is producing a crop. What are some of the challenges of harvesting that crop?
0: So our low bush wild blueberries do have more genetic diversity within a given field because they've never been bred, which is fascinating. And it, it creates a very diverse biological system but it also creates some challenges because you've got all these different plants that are ripening at different times, yet we harvest them all at the same time. You know We go for the average ripeness. So it, it's difficult to manage the field for specific genotypes, but you know, the farmers just don't do that. We um, just treat the whole thing the same way with every management practice.
1: So does that mean that it would be more difficult to sell fresh wild blueberries because there might be a little bit more inconsistency in the flavor and quality than what we see with the highbush
0: blueberry? So your point, yes, it would be really hard to get a perfect quality for a fresh pack, for example. Fresh, berry, fresh wild blueberries are sold in Maine, but their shelf life is shorter than highbush blueberries because we can't just harvest one variety right on time and cool them down and ship them out of state maintaining quality because they're all different ripening stages in there.
1: Now that the crop is harvested, what does
0: the wild blueberry taste like?
1: And how does that field variation affect what you
0: taste? Because we have all these different plants in the field in a handful you can end up with some sweet and some a little more sour which is a nice balance but also the low bush blueberry has two times the antioxidants as a high bush blueberry because they're smaller they have more skin to flesh ratio and the antioxidants are found in the skin
1: That sounds delicious. And with antioxidant being such a food buzzword, it must help with some of the wild blueberry marketing. What are some of the challenges of advertising and marketing wild blueberries?
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, it needs a lot of work is the short answer. (laughs) The um, challenge is that the consumer doesn't necessarily know what the difference is between a wild blueberry and a highbush blueberry. And also we have a lot more highbush blueberries that have been planted over the past 10 years across the world. So now we're able to get fresh highbush blueberries in the grocery store almost every month of the year, which is a a feat of (laughs) engineering and agriculture to be able to get a delicate berry like a blueberry across the world uh, for people to eat in January. That sounds like a really challenging situation for
1: growers and the Wild Blueberry Association to cope with. Before we switch gears to talk more about the research you do, I want to take a quick break. Hi everyone, Just Julia here. I wanted to take a quick break from the blueberry action to thank you all so much for listening. This project is something that I've been really excited to share with all of you, and I'm just so happy that day is finally here. If you've been following along on social media or listened to the trailer, you'll know this podcast is a part of my PhD. For this project, I'll be comparing the effectiveness of traditional scientific communications, such as poster and PowerPoint presentations, with this podcast. So, it's super important that people are actually listening to the podcast, because I'll need to collect some survey data after the show has been going on for a while. But outside of all that degree business, starting a podcast has been a dream of mine for a long time, and I would absolutely love it if you would share this with your family, your friends, or that person you always see in the hallway but never speak to. If you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to send me an email at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com or share a comment on one of the Hooked on Science social media pages and I will do my very best to get those answered and update you in the next episode. You can follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at Hooked on Science Pod or on Twitter at Hooked Science. You may have also noticed on today's show that my audio sounds a little crisper than Lily's, and that's because she's in Maine and I'm in Minnesota, so we recorded this episode remotely. I will be doing this every few weeks because there are some amazing experts around the country that I want to hear from. So the audio quality might not always be 100, but the content will always be amazing. And with that, let's get back to the show. Okay, we are back. Let's get into the research
0: side of things. Lily, how do you decide what you're going to do your research on? Good question. How do we decide what to work on? There are so many projects to do. And a lot of it has to do with where we can get funding to do it and what the immediate need is to the farmers. So climate change is definitely one that we are working on. One collaborative research project I have is with this plant physiologist and we have chambers out in a blueberry field where we're increasing the heat that the blueberries are exposed to. And that's one example of more basic research, but the applied work, you know, those ideas come from farmers directly. And some of the best project ideas have come right out of a farmer's mouth. <laughs> I didn't, come, I can't take any credit for it. There are farmers who are really scientists and they know a lot about their crop. They know more about it than I do. So I learn a lot from them.
1: And once you've determined that there is a need for a project, how do you tailor the recommendations to each growing region? Maine is a really big state And as you said earlier, there are a few different growing regions and that each one has different soil types and probably has a slightly different climate. Are you conducting research across the whole state?
0: Yep, (laughs) absolutely. Maine is a big place. And so we do research in each region. So I typically have three different sites for a given project. One in this mid-coast region, one in the Ellsworth area, which is near Bangor and close to campus, and then one further down east where these blueberry barrens are. So I include three different regions to account for that soil and climate variability. I know you're the blueberry
1: specialist, but it sounds like it would be really difficult to be an expert on all these different realms of blueberry research and to address these grower questions. Do you need to outsource for some of that knowledge?
0: Yeah. So I'm the wild blueberry specialist, but I really feel like the wild blueberry generalist in that my hands are in a lot of different topics. And as you say, I cannot be an expert on all these subjects. Um, And recently, I feel like I'm the only person who knows all of the work that's going on on wild blueberry, but we have at least five or six different researchers besides myself who are working on wild blueberry. And so a few of the others are a plant pathologist, Shana Anis. She works on plant disease and specifically mummy berry for wild blueberry. We also have a wild blueberry entomologist, Phil Fanning, and he works on spotted ring drosophila quite a bit now, but also pollinator habitat and pollinator health. We have a state apiarist. She does all the honeybee inspections. So that's a really good partnership, not necessarily on research, but on hive health and just understanding how many hives come into this state every year. And it's a topic of political interest. I also have two graduate students and a technician who helped me a lot. I couldn't have so many collaborations if they weren't they're helping me to organize it all. You talked
1: earlier about how farmers often bring you their questions and concerns, but how do you balance the questions that you want to answer academically with the questions that you need to answer for practical production reasons?
0: This is still an art that I'm trying to master. And so the entomologist and the plant physiologist and the plant pathologist are all in the biology department. And so, they have very basic research questions that contribute to our knowledge of science and these different pests and the literal functioning of the plant. And we meet and I talk with them about their ideas. And then, you know, I'll suggest some ways that we could make it a little more applicable to the farmers on their farms. So it's really a combination of the two. Some projects lean more heavily towards the basic research of fundamentals, while others are very much applied work and have outreach components to them. I think you know a lot of our funding comes from the USDA, and those grant opportunities often require both a contribution to science in addition to outreach and involving stakeholders. And involving stakeholders has become more and more important over time, so the basic researchers do understand that having farmer input and having it be applicable to the growers is really important. A lot of our basic researchers also have an extension appointment, even though it would be small. They, I do invite them to be guest speakers at farmer meetings, and so I, we really do integrate these faculty from the biology department or the School of Food and Agriculture in-field meetings so that they can have that perspective, too, and they can hear from farmers as to what's important to them.
1: Lily, I know you haven't been in your position for too long now, and many of your projects just got started this past summer, but are there any interesting findings you can share?
0: Um, well, we're just getting started, so we don't have a lot of findings yet, but we have some preliminary results. I started a project through Northeast SARE, on weed and nutrient management for organic wild blueberry growers. So that project includes a tine weeding and cover cropping component. And if you were familiar with this wild blueberry crop, you would think that was a crazy idea. These fields have never been tilled. They accumulate a thin layer of organic matter. They have very little soil. What soil is there, we don't want to disturb. But weed management is a real need. We've relied on chemical weed control for a very long time. And now because of consumer demand, farmers are interested in alternative ways of weed control. So one option is tine weeding, which I tried for the first time last season. Tine weeding is a tractor attachment that is almost like a fork dragging through the ground. And you do this dragging right at the very beginning of the season in the spring, when the little baby weeds have just emerged or even just before they're going to emerge. So very early spring, you drag this big fork through the field and um, dislodge those little baby weeds. So we did that and um, we measured the blueberry plant growth and weed reduction. There were certain weed species that were dug right out and they fell on the ground and died. So that was positive. Others were not touched at all by the time it didn't drag them out at all. The most interesting thing is that dragging this tool through the blueberry actually stimulated blueberry growth. And we can possibly see that there are more stems per square foot in the tine weeded plots. So it'll be interesting to see if tine weeding would actually make the blueberry more competitive against weeds. If, If you can thicken the crop, maybe you could increase competition against the weeds. That's just preliminary, so we'll see how it goes. Those
1: sound like really promising results. Hopefully you'll continue to find out more next season. And speaking of your findings, Once you get your findings from a research study, how do you share it with farmers?
0: One example is that there were three separate spring meetings uh, where growers would meet just in their region, and they would hear the latest research and get to meet with each other there, which is great. But they were really these isolated groups, so three different locations that never met each other. And so I created a single wild blueberry conference in Bangor, which is pretty central. And so we had the first one last year, which was a total hit. People really enjoyed it.
1: That sounds awesome. I hope that continues to be an amazing success. And as I mentioned before, you're just getting your program started, but where do you see your research going in the future?
0: I don't know, to be honest. (laughs) It's a good question. And we, you know, I should think about this more. I I would like to see that We're less reliant on chemical options as the first choice to manage pests. I'd like to see a more well-rounded IPM approach, and we're well on our way to getting there, but the, the market and the consumer demand really intersects with the research that we do, and so I hope that we can do more quality research and almost tailor certain parts of the field maybe to different end users or end uses. You know, maybe there's certain chemistry that will develop at a certain time of season that is perfect for winemaking, or maybe there are different parts of the field that could be managed for fresh berries things like that are really interesting to me. And, you know, that all of that work on value-added products or just the crop getting to market is tied in with our pest management and the agronomics of the field work. So, I'd like to tie those two together.
1: Well, I can't wait to hear about what the future of wild blueberries looks like and hopefully we'll be seeing more wild blueberry products on our shelves in the future. Lily, we've had such a wonderful conversation today. If people are interested in learning more about wild blueberries and your research, where can they go to learn more about it?
0: Yeah, um, they can go to our University of Maine wild blueberry website, and you can get in touch with us there. You can easily sign up to receive our newsletter or make a comment in one of the feedback boxes, and I will see it.
1: Lily, a huge thank you again for being my very first guest, especially when I didn't have a lot of information to give you about the format of the show. Thank you for being generous with your time and all the knowledge you shared today. I look forward to chatting again with you in the future.
0: Yeah, thank you, Juliet. Thanks for having me. This was really fun.
1: Welcome to the final fun fact of the episode. We're not quite done yet, and if you've listened to the whole episode this far, thank you so much. I hope you liked it. This is a space where I want you, as the listener, to send me your favorite fun facts about science or the world in general, and I'll read them on the show. Since this is the first episode and I don't have any submissions yet, I'm going to share one of my favorite fun facts with you. Anyone that knows me knows that I love space. I even have a solar system tattoo. So it's only fitting that I share an outer space fact with you today. Did you know that a black hole is a little bit musical? It emits a B-flat note. Unfortunately, this B-flat is too low for any human to hear. It's 57 octaves below middle C. Um, To give you some perspective, a regular piano has about seven octaves on it. But we know that that black hole is emitting its B-flat note and now you can share it with someone else. If you want your fun fact to be featured as the final fun fact of the episode, please send me an email with your fact to hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com and I'll see you next time.